DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from Dr. Lillis's lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's an author of several books, including Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation on Prayer, and Fire from Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. In this particular series of conversations, we'll focus on the spiritual writings of St. Teresa of Avila, and in particular, her autobiography. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. I've said it several times now, and she's very practical, and she sees that people come from different places. She even describes the, the different types of prayer that we may encounter. For example, when she talks about vocal prayer, or mental prayer, or contemplative prayer. Could you help with us to understand what she's speaking of in those instances? Vocal prayer is the most basic, and the, but really in some ways the most important starting place. When the disciples approached Jesus, they approached him because they saw him praying. And after, this is in the Gospel of Luke, that account. They saw him praying, and after they saw him praying, witnessed him praying, he said, you know, Master, the disciples of John the Baptist were taught by John the Baptist how to pray. Will you teach us how to pray? There was something about the prayer of Jesus that was dynamic, that, that meaning it evoked questions, it evoked a response. You wanted to somehow know how he was doing what he was doing. Jesus, rather than teaching an elaborate technique, a method for meditation or some very technical spiritual exercise, Jesus doesn't teach that. He teaches a kind of prayer that anyone who has even the first moment of faith can take up and make their own. He teaches a vocal prayer. So vocal prayer is a prayer that you pray out loud with your voice. Moreover, this vocal prayer he teaches, I mean, somebody could say, oh, yes, well, he taught like a mantra, like, you know, the Hindus have mantras or, you know, some kind of hum or something like that. But he, he just uses words instead. And so this is kind of a mantra. No, each of the words that he teaches has meaning and content. And that meaning and content that is unfolded reveals to us the beauty of, of his own heart, the heart of Jesus, as the heart of the Son of God from all eternity, our Father who art in heaven. It's a declaration of love. Uh, it's a declaration also that recognizes that if our Father is in heaven, our earthly cares and the things that we're going through here on earth, this is not our true home, ultimately. Uh, we are meant for a life. If our Father is in heaven, we are meant for a life that this world can't hold down. So we live in this world, we, we contend with this world, uh, we're in this world, but we're not of this world, because why? Our Father is in heaven. Jesus doesn't say, my Father. He could have, and it would have been theologically right in his case. But he says, when you pray, pray our Father. In other words, he's in this very humble, vocal prayer. He's inviting us 
into his own sonship so that we can relate to the Father in, through, with him, so that his relationship with the Father becomes our relationship with the Father. His love for the Father becomes our love for the Father. And the Father's blessing in his life becomes our, a blessing in our life. So vocal prayer has to have, in order to be um, a Christian, Teresa, Teresa of Avila is going to say it needs to have three kinds of attention to it. It, it needs to be meaningful, meaning it needs to engage your mind on, on one of three levels. One level that it should engage your mind is you should be attending to the words that you're saying. When you're attending to the words that you're saying, for example, when you say the Our Father, this vocal prayer is Christian prayer, just like I just demonstrated. If you begin just those first, Our Father who art in heaven, already if you're thinking about the meaning of that, your heart is caught up in something profoundly meaningful. Uh, you're caught up in relations that are eternal and above time and, and more powerful than this world. At the same time, the other thing that you can attend to when you pray is yourself. Who am I to be saying these words? I don't deserve to be saying these words. I'm saying these words because in the fullness of time the Father sent his only begotten Son to me. Not because I was great or good or no, I was still a sinner when he sent his Son for me. And his Son loved me and he loved me to the end to reveal the Father's love, that the Father's love was so great that no matter what I, I've done, it doesn't take the Father's love away from me. The Father, because of what Jesus did for me, I know the Father has forgiven me because Jesus gave up his life for me. That evokes in you, I, who am a sinner, have been someone immensely loved by God, loved by God in a way that is astonishing. So I at once can acknowledge that I'm a sinner and that I don't deserve this gift. And at the same time, I can acknowledge in this prayer, by this vocal prayer, that I, who am a sinner, who do not give, deserve this gift, have received it anyway. That dual awareness of our wretchedness and our blessedness, the more you attend to that, the more your, your prayer is Christian prayer. It's not an act of manipulation then. It's a humble acknowledgement about where I really am before God. I'm in a place I don't deserve, and yet I'm here because he's loved me anyway. So first thing, you attend to the words that in vocal prayer. Second thing, you attend to who you are in vocal prayer, to be daring to say these words. The third thing that makes Christian prayer Christian, and probably you might say even the most important thing, because if you attend to these words, and you attend to who you are to be saying these words, it leads to this third kind of attentiveness or awareness when we pray, and that is an awareness of who God is. Who is God that he would uh, love me so much? Elizabeth of the Trinity would say, he loves me too much. He loves me with a too much love, an exceeding love, St. Paul says in the scriptures. Who is this God who loves excessively beyond measure? Who is he who would rescue me from death when I didn't deserve it and raise me up to such honor? 
who would allow me to pronounce these words and say that I have, by telling me to pronounce them, by commanding me to pronounce these words, has given me a right before heaven and earth to say these words. Who is this God who would do such a thing? Whether you attend to the words, or you attend to who you are, or you attend to this powerful mystery of who God is, if you attend to any one of those three things, you are praying. If you're not attending to any of them, for Teresa of Avila, you're not praying at all. You're being a noisy gong, and your words mean nothing, even though they be the most eloquent and revealed words that have ever been revealed, words that Christ himself, the word of the Father, revealed to us. Words would open up the possibility of addressing God as our Father. Though we say those words, they are not, it's not Christian prayer when we do not attend to God or attend to what we are saying or attend to who we are to dare to say it. Any one of those things makes it Christian prayer. The absence of all three of them makes our prayer just a noise. Jesus then, according to Teresa of Avila, is not teaching that we're just saying a bunch of meaningless syllables and that you can interchange this with other things. Jesus is teaching us something profoundly meaningful. It's meaningful because it puts us in a relationship with Jesus and in a relationship to the Father. If you think about that, who else is in a relationship with Jesus and the Father? The Holy Spirit. These words that Jesus taught us veil our hearts to movements of the Holy Spirit, the movements, the same movements of the Spirit that the Son and the Father share. This is all that vocal prayer accomplishes. It's the most humble. Other religious traditions in the world kind of look down on Christianity because our prayer that Jesus taught us is not sophisticated. It's a very simple method. It's primitive, they say. And yet, this very primitive, a very simple, very humble prayer raises us to the very heights of heaven if we attend to either what we're saying or who we are to be saying it or who God is that he revealed that we ought to be saying this, that he commanded us to say it. All other degrees of prayer from here on out are based in this kind of vocal prayer. Vocal prayer to be valid when you attend to one of these three things that I've just listed, that means vocal prayer for us is never something simply physiological. It's never simply sounds that I'm making. Other religious traditions, they'll call that some form of meditation, not Christianity. It's not prayer if you're not attending to the things that I've just talked about. So for Teresa of Avila then, vocal prayer is always connected to what she calls mental prayer. Mental prayer is prayer that involves our intellects, our minds, what we are aware of. It takes up our hearts. It can touch the deepest affections at the core of our being. It can play upon our intuitions and our imagination, our memory and our intellect. But it can go beyond all those powers, beyond our power to think and imagine and to it. It can touch places so deep that we don't even know they're there, this mental prayer. As long as we, we can be aware of God in a way that we do not understand, 
We can be aware of what we're saying in a way that goes beyond our understandings. We can be aware of ourself in a way that goes beyond our understanding. In fact, our faith is going to lead us there because what we understand about ourselves or God or even the words God commanded us to pray is very, very little. The fullness of meaning that's there, the, the fullness of love that is in those words, the fullness of glory that is being revealed in the depths of my soul, the fullness of joy that resides in the heart of the Trinity. These are things that are beyond my imagination, my, my intuition, my feelings, my understandings. Mental prayer already begins in vocal prayer, but sometimes it can leave behind words. And sometimes it can be an exercise of my imagination or my memory. We've talked about that previously. Sometimes it even goes beyond our imagination and memory. Sometimes it goes into places that are even beyond our understanding, this mental prayer. What is this mental prayer? It's it's a loving awareness of God's presence, God revealing us to ourselves, God revealing to us what what the words are that we're saying. God, Jesus, the risen Lord, present to us. The more you are aware of him, the more he has captivated you, uh, the more he is drawing you, the deeper you have gone into mental prayer. So you can never have vocal prayer without mental prayer and it still be Christian. But, um, but mental prayer sometimes goes beyond words and involves our faculties, but sometimes it even goes beyond our faculties. We find our faculties resting in the presence of the Lord. We call that kind of prayer recollection, acquired recollection. So we have vocal prayer, and then we have prayer, mental prayer, where we're using our intellects and things, and and that can involve different kinds of meditation. Meditation in and of itself isn't necessarily prayer, but if while we're meditating, we're attending to who God is, who we are to be coming before the Lord, the mysteries on which we're thinking about are draw us to him, then all of a sudden our meditation is breaking out into prayer. But there comes a time in that we're silenced by his presence. And that's recollection. We're able to draw our powers to him. It's at that point that our efforts kind of have led us to a threshold where God is going to do something very beautiful. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. St. Teresa speaks to us today, saying, 
Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. O God, who through your Spirit raised up St. Teresa of Jesus to show the Church the way to seek perfection, grant that we may always be nourished by the food of her heavenly teaching and fired with longing for true holiness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Teresa, pray for us. That we may become worthy of the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. You mentioned this previously about the experience of Anthony Bloom, and Teresa would write about something that sounded similar in her life that she was aware of the presence of Jesus, the presence of God. She didn't see him with her eyes in the beginning, didn't see, but could, she could see. And I don't want to just say imagination, because sometimes people think of that when you use the term imagination, they jump to fantasy. But for her, as you just said, I mean, it was so real. His hands, his feet, and in the beginning she couldn't see his face. But she was very aware of his presence fully. Is that what you're speaking of? Sure. One of my favorite stories about Teresa of Avila, in fact, was she was in her cell wrapped deep in prayer, and a little boy all of a sudden appeared. And she asked this little boy, Who are you? And the little boy looked right at Teresa and said, Who are you? And Teresa said, I am Teresa of Jesus. And the boy looked directly at her and said, I am Jesus of Teresa. I thought, you know, it's a beautiful kind of playfulness that that God had with her. You know, he disclosed himself to her in his sacred humanity as a boy and, and was playful with her in prayer. I guess I tell this story because did she imagine that? Did she see, was it a, a vision? With her and other mystics like her, the presence of God can be in her imagination or it can be in the presence of God can be also something that engages her physical senses. She doesn't really distinguish between the two very much, and she doesn't have to. And it's similar with us. God can be present to us in our senses or in our imagination. Your imagination is what's called the internal sense. If he manifests himself in prayer in a way that you visibly see with your eyes, it's, it's somewhat a rare occurrence, but it's not the most powerful thing that could ever happen. An apparition is not the most powerful presence of the Lord. 
The church doesn't teach that. Nor does the church even teach that the presence of the Lord in our imagination so that we can picture his face or his hands. He's so present in our imagination. He allows our imagination to form images of him that we enjoy in our hearts. That's a very powerful kind of presence, but that's not the most powerful presence. You could say that his presence to us in our intellects is a very powerful presence, even more powerful than the other two that I've I've told you about. John of the Cross kind of makes a case for a certain kind of intellectual apprehension of the word of the Father that is like a direct contact with him in our minds. It's utterly transforming. That's a beautiful thing. But there is one presence that the church calls the real presence, and that's the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And all all the other presences and all the other ways that God manifests himself to us, whether if he favors you to see him with your eyes or in your imagination or to think a holy thought that is so beautiful it captivates all of those other things, the, the way God works, where the way he can draw up your whole affectivity and cause it to be inflamed by him. All of those things come from and lead to the Eucharistic presence of the Lord, this real presence of Jesus in the world, hidden under the form of, of bread and wine. He is fully present to us in a saving mystery in a transformative and dynamic way. Uh, Teresa of Avila was drawn to the Eucharist, and I think the Eucharist rooted her whole prayer experience. You know, we talked in a very early show about how the whole Spanish kingdom was built around the Eucharistic presence of the Lord, that how King Philip in his palace that he built, built his room so he could look down and behold the tabernacle as he fell asleep. Teresa of Avila's prayer can be understood in the same way. All these extraordinary experiences that she had, whether in her senses or in her imagination or in her mind, all the different feelings that she'll describe, all of these things are ordered to the real presence of God in the world and can rest in the Eucharist. They flow from and lead to the Eucharist. It doesn't mean that any of these other things aren't real presences of him. But when we say the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, we're talking about a fullness of presence that is sanctifying not only me when I go before the tabernacle, but it's actually sanctifying the whole world. It, it is a remarkable thing when we think about it, but then again, it's, it's really um, reality at its finest expression. I mean, what it is, it, it, Teresa I, I don't know if it's true or not. I, I don't think she ever had access to the writings of Hildegard von Bingen, just because of the nature of the differences in language and the accessibility. But Hildegard would write a, a, of a similar type of experience in her visions and, and what she would experience of the Lord. And she said very clearly, it's not something I saw with my eyes, mm. but it was so present to me that I saw it. Mm-hmm. And she would hear it but she didn't hear it auditorily, but it was so vivid and so real. For those who are entering into prayer, not to maybe necessarily dismiss those kind of things, that when something begins a movement, maybe the encouragement that she's doing in the way of perfection for her sisters is don't be afraid. Mm. That's, a, uh, that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and um, but 
I, I think there's also many souls who never see anything or hear uh, the Lord speaking to them. I think the most important thing, this would be more John of Avila, is that we attend to the presence of the Lord and we block out other noises and other things that are trying to distract us and we attend to, to his presence. Whether or not we feel it or understand it or can seem to be able to recognize it, we may never experience it in our imagination. We may never see anything with our eyes. That would be normal. Uh, souls that are being led that way, John of the Cross would say, they are being, their faith, they're going by the way of faith, and this is the safer way to go. God is doing something even more wonderful in them than he is in the soul of somebody who has visions, either a presence of God in their imagination or a presence in their physical sentence, senses that they, they are able to interpret. The normal, safe way to go and the more fruitful way to go is to believe in his presence by faith. You, know, you might think about the words of our Lord to St. Thomas. You, know, you, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who do not see and still believe. And those who are devote themselves to pray, not because of any mystical experiences they have received or hope to receive, but because they are in love with the Lord. Those souls are the great souls. They're the souls whom God is accomplishing his most beautiful work in. So as we go through and we read this and we see the different beautiful ways that the Lord manifests himself to St. Teresa and that she'll talk about, it would be a mistake to go, oh, I've never experienced that. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'll never be a great saint. Well, not all the saints did experience this. Some did, and Teresa's writing to people at a time where this kind of experience is more prevalent and and those kind and it may be more prevalent for other people that you might just because you're not experiencing everything she talks about does not mean that the Lord isn't working in your heart. He is manifesting himself to you in very subtle and gentle but exquisite ways, and recognizing his presence by faith, choosing to believe in it, this is what allows us to go deep into prayer. Would it be true, Anthony, for someone who, say, uh, a mother who gazes upon the face of her child asleep in her lap, and there all there's a movement or something is happening, and she just has this connection, not only in the beauty of her child's face, but all of a sudden there's awareness of God's presence, mm. you know, or something similar to that. I mean, those those every moments you may go out and gaze upon the, the beauty of a mountain or the, the sunshine that will come out, and then there is awareness of that presence. Is that in a glimpse? Is that an aspect of that? Well, sure, uh, what you're describing. Actually, that should be the way we kind of experience reality all the time. When we do experience reality like that all the time, as we're talking to people, noticing the Lord's presence, as we're driving, noticing the Lord's presence, being choosing to be aware of it. We're, we're actually obeying Jesus, who told us to remain in him. We're actually praying without ceasing, as St. Paul says. Pray without ceasing. Uh, one of the ways traditionally the tradition is understood, what, what did St. Paul mean by that? You can't always be saying vocal prayers, or so what did he mean? But if you are perpetually aware that God is present to you, and you make little acts 
choosing to believe in that presence even when you don't see it. It's kind of easy when your baby has fallen asleep in your arms to believe in the presence of God. It's another thing to believe in the presence of God when you know, you're woken up at three o'clock in the morning because he has a toothache or a headache or a earache of some kind, and and you're trying to soothe him and there's just no soothing him or her. That would be your ceaseless prayer being tested, your awareness of the Lord being tested. But we know because of the saints that even at such times, it's possible to submit such times to the presence of the Lord. So nothing seems at peace with you at all. You're frantic trying to to soothe this baby who won't be soothed. And yet on a deeper level, you have the peace of knowing that the Lord is with you, even in that. And that would be ceaseless prayer. That's the mystery of suffering in some ways, isn't it? That we're able to um, be able to continue to seek out that presence, even in the midst of suffering. I think that's very true and a very powerful thing. And the beauty of this kind of prayer that Teresa of Avila is teaching us is that it is the kind of prayer that can carry us through any suffering. It can carry us through joys and and times of great comfort and consolation, but it is also the kind of prayer that can carry us through every suffering. She says that we're on this journey to the refreshing living water who is Jesus. And while we're on this journey, There are people who are going to try to stop us. There are, uh, and she's talking very specifically about demonic forces, not human people, demonic ones. And she said, the reason why you're here is to fight. You, You must fight if you're going to get to the water. And you must never give up. This kind of prayer can take us through that spiritual battle. And sometimes that means battling spirits that attack us through all kinds of physical and psychological hardships, engaging the struggle, and never giving up on the love of God. If we engage the fray this way, if we don't lose heart, we will get to the living water that the Lord longs us to have, for that living water is Him Himself. But He's put us in this life to fight and struggle for it, and she's saying the struggle is worth it. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's been great to be with you and uh, look forward to a future conversation soon. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on whatever platform you obtain your podcasts. There, too, you can also listen to an audio version of the complete autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.